Okay, so today we're doing first and second Samuel. This session we're gonna do first Samuel. And you guys are familiar with it, right? Familiar with Samuel. So first and second Samuel are part of the historical books, so it's still narrative, right? Giving us a lot of stories, and some of the most well-known stories come from first and second Samuel, right? Especially David and Goliath. So 1 Samuel de deals with the start of the monarchy in Israel, and it ends with the death of King Saul. And then 2 Samuel is about the reign of David. So let's get right into it. Chapter 1. So chapter 1 of the book begins with the birth of Samuel, and it's not really a, a normal birth. There's a whole account to his birth, similar to how uh, John the Baptist had a, had a whole account of his birth, right? And in it, there's a woman named Anna, and she's not able to have any children. She's barren. And other women abuse her because of that. So Hannah goes to the temple to pray, and she's asking for the Lord to give her a son. So she's praying in the temple, and the priest in the temple is a man named Eli. And it's probably an indication of the spiritual condition of Israel at that point, because the priest, Eli, has never seen fervent prayer, right? He's never seen someone in fervent prayer. He thinks that Hannah is drunk. So when he realizes that she's not drunk and what she's praying for, he says, okay, the Lord will answer your prayer. And Anna says that she will give the child to the Lord, right? And then in verse, verse 20 of, first, of chapter 1, Samuel is born, right? Then we, get, we go to chapter 2. In chapter 2, there's Hannah's song. So Hannah sings a song, and the song is similar to what's known as Mary's Magnificat, right? So if you turn quickly to Luke chapter 1, Luke 1, on verse 46, you have Mary's Magnificat there. And Magnificat is the Latin for magnifies, right? So it's my soul magnifies the Lord. And if you read the song or the prayer, you will see a lot of similarities between Mary's song of praise and Hannah's song of praise, right? So um, I have the side-by-side -side comparison here. I'll send it to the group, which will make it easier for you guys to read. But in verse 1 of, first Sa of, of Samuel, uh, Hannah will say, my heart exalts in the Lord. I rejoice in thy salvation. Verse 46 of Luke 1, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Right? Hannah will say, there is none holy like the Lord. Uh, Mary will say, holy is his name. Uh, Hannah will say, the bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble uh, gird on strength. And Mary will say, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. Right? So there's a lot of similarities. And then if you go back to 1 Samuel if you look at verse 10, right, Hannah says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So at this point in time, was there a king in Israel? There's no king, right? Israel did not yet have a king. And yet, there's a reference here to a king, even though the monarchy has not been established, right? So what Hannah is praying here is almost prophetic in the sense that there is a king to come, right? God's anointed or his Messiah. Uh, if you read the, the, the Hebrew translation of the anointed there, it reads as his Messiah. 
And then we are told about what's going, to hap- what's going on in the tent of meeting. So from verse 12, remember the temple has not yet been built. So there's a tent of meeting for worship. And a lot of bad things are happening in the place of worship. Eli, the priest, has two sons, and they are called worthless men. And in some translations, like the, uh, the King James, the sons are called sons of Belial, right? Because they did not know the Lord. So they are very evil, blasphemous, and profane men, even though they are priests. And I think even uh, the word Belial is used of Satan in the New Testament, right? Uh, Satan is called Belial. So to be sons of Belial is to be sons of the devil, right? And I think we did speak about uh, son of, son of uh, the sons of, sons of God and sons of the devil, right? Being made in the character of the devil. So we find out that these guys are stealing sacrifices uh, from the people, right? The people bring sacrifices to the temple and they are stealing the fat of the sacrifices, the fat of the meat. This was supposed to be burnt up to the Lord, right? The fat was given to the Lord. They're also seducing the ladies who come to the tent of meeting to worship the Lord and they are sleeping with them. So there's gross immorality and blasphemy going on, but Eli doesn't confront and deal with it, right? He's aware of it, not through seeing it, but through hearing about it. So we are told, if you look at verse 22, in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, guys, if you look at verse 22, it says, Now Eli was, a very, was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So he's hearing, right? He's not actually seeing these things. And then when you get to chapter 3 of of 1 Samuel, uh, in verse 2, it's where we told that Eli can't see properly. His eyesight is dim. Hence why he can't see what his sons are doing. He has to hear about it from others. But he doesn't take any action to restrain his sons. right? And that's one of the reasons he's going to be judged. It's because he didn't discipline his sons. He didn't deal with them properly. And if you were here last week, uh, you remember Pastor Mike was um, explaining how physical ailments of people in the Old Testament tend to be spiritual realities for them, right? So Eli's eyesight is not working, which shows that he's in spiritual darkness, right? He's spiritually blind. Um, but and as, as, as soon as he starts to do what, is, what he should be doing, you'll see that the Lord restores his eyesight and it comes back to him, right? And then, so just to go back to... Chapter 2 again, at the end, verse 29, the Lord rejects Eli's household for their sinfulness. So verse 29 says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Verse 30, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So the Lord says, if you don't honor me, 
the word honor there uh, carries the idea of weight, right? Of weightiness, of heaviness, uh, of substance of, and magnitude. So the Lord is saying, if you don't see me as weighty and worthy to be esteemed, then I will see you as fluff, something light, you know, something almost weightless. And there's a contrast in that picture, right? The weighty honor God and the insignificant weightless ones are the sinners, right? They are worthless. And that is a theme in scripture. What does Psalm 1 say about the wicked? So Psalm 1 says that the righteous are established and they will stand, but the wicked, it says in verse 4 of Psalm 1, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Right? There is no substance to them. What is chaff good for? Nothing. To be burned. Exactly. Right? Chaff is just useful to be thrown into a fire. And the way that's, that's, that's the way of the wicked, right? Um, the way of the wicked will perish. So the Lord tells Eli, through a man who's not named in the passage, he says, look, I'm going to establish another priesthood, another house, and that is through Samuel, right? And then in chapter 3, we see the Lord physically calling Samuel, right? He's calling out to Samuel, who thinks it's Eli calling him, but it's actually the Lord. So... Eli tells him in verse 9 of chapter 3, Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So the Lord then says to Samuel, Look, I'm going to do something that will make uh, both the ears of everyone tingle. Right? And it sounds like a nice thing, you know, the, God, the Lord will make, I don't know, make everyone feel nice, give, give them a tingling sensation. Uh, but the idea here is actually like the tingling you get after you've been slapped, right? Which I'm sure most of you are familiar with, especially from childhood. When you get slapped and your, your ears are stinging, they're tingling. So God is saying that I'm going to slap everyone's ears. And how is God going to do this? He's going to kill Eli and both his sons in one day, right? So Eli says to Samuel, look, tell me everything God said. Don't hold anything back because Samuel is quite reluctant, right? So this young man, Samuel, tells the older man, he's like, God is going to kill you and your sons. Right? And the response of Samuel is very important. Very important. Verse 18. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, Eli says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So that's a good response. Right? That's a good response from Eli. Instead of resisting God's will, he submits to it. Eli accepts his judgment humbly. So Eli is in a bad spiritual space, but when this news comes, he submits to it. He submits to the Lord. Right. In chapter 4, um, the Jews go to war against the Philistines. Right. And the Jews, uh, they, they camped out in a place called Ebenezer and um, I don't know if I, should I draw this out? Should I draw out a map for you guys to see what's happening in the land? I don't know if it's happening. I'm not with my drawing skills because that happened the last time. Okay, so this is the sea. And then you have this land here. This is the land of the Philistines. And then the Philistines are here within the land in a place called Afek. And 
the Israelites are in Ebenezer. Right. And then this is Shiloh, way here. So Israelites are there, and they want to attack the Philistines, so they come out all the way to Ebenezer, and they wait there. They camp there to attack. Yes, you have a question? Oh. And then they, they wait to attack, right? So they camp there, and then the first day they attack them, and what happens? They get defeated. They lose, right? And they lose 4,000 men on the first day. So this is before the Ark of the Covenant is with them in battle, right? So the Ark of the Covenant is way back in China. So they lose, and then they're like, oh, we've lost the battle. We need our lucky charm, right? We need the Ark of the Covenant. So they send word back to Shiloh, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant, and the next day they go with it into, into battle, right? So why are they doing this? Why are they getting the Ark of the Covenant? What do you guys think? They become superstitious, right? They're not actually trusting in the Lord. They're like, now that we have this, then, you know, we, we, we reset. You know, we have our lucky charm. Um, so they bring the Ark of the Covenant with them in battle, and then what happens? They defeat it again. They lose, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken, right? So the warning for us here is that it's easy to become superstitious, right? Even as believers, trusting not in the Lord, but... Uh, in your Jesus peace, right? Or um, trusting in, you know, like some people say, oh, my Bible must never touch the ground because if it doesn't, you know? <laughs> or some people, you know, yeah, like there are Christians who believe that, unfortunately. Um, or, you know, like it, it can be as subtle as I didn't have my morning prayer, my morning devotion today. You know, I didn't have my morning devotion and now everything's going, going wrong, everything's going bad at work, oh, and I'm getting to a fight with this family member, this friend. That's superstition, right? Um, which is weird because, I don't know, I, I have bad days even if I do have my morning devotions. So, you know, that's not a gauge. Um, but, you know, don't trust in the thing itself. Don't trust in your prayer. Okay, my prayer was two minutes long. Great. You know, I've had content for God now. Um, um, it's trusting in the Lord. You know, it's actual trust in the Lord and not in the thing that we do to feel closer to the Lord. Okay? So they lose the Ark of the Covenant and uh, it's taken by the Philistines. They take it uh, uh, back to their land. And so Eli is back in the land because he's a, he's a priest. He doesn't fight, right? He's back in the land and he's sitting at the camp and he's waiting for news to hear what's happened. But notice what it says, right? Verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 4. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. So what is the first thing that you guys know today about Eli? He can see. He's watching, right? He's watching for it. Secondly, He's, he's trembling for the Ark of the Covenant, right? Um, so notice his heart toward the things of God since he submitted to God's will, right? But of course, there's still judgment for him, unfortunately. And it happens at this very moment. News comes in from the battle that both his sons have died and the Ark has been taken. 
So being overweight, he was like super fat, right? He was really overweight. Eli falls over when he hears the news that this has happened to his sons. He's shocked, falls over, and then because of his sheer volume, he breaks his neck, right? And then he dies. And at the same time that Eli is busy dying, his daughter-in-law is giving birth to a son, and she names the son Ichabod, right? Ich means no, and Bod means glory. So she names uh, her son no glory, right? All the glory is gone. In chapter 6, we see the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant, right? We have captured their God, that's what they say, and which really shows their pagan view of gods, right? Um, to think that God can be captured, to think that God can be put into a temple, into a place. So they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple with Dagon, which is a god, one of their false gods, and the next day, the statue of Dagon has fallen over, Right. So what do they do? They pick it right back up. Can you see how ridiculous that is? You know, like, oh, God has fallen over. Let's help him up. Let's help him up. The next day, the very same thing happens, right? And the statue has fallen over. Except this time, the head and the hands have been broken off. Which is what they would do. The Philistines would do this whenever they captured the king of a foreign land, right? They would cut his head off and they would chop off his hands. Right? So God is reminding them who is actually in charge. Right? God is reminding them that he is the true and living God. And the important thing to remember in this whole account is that when Israel is losing, it does not mean that God is losing. Right? Because you could take that away. You could think, ah, the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. God has lost. Right? God is in absolute control of the whole thing. And actually, Israel is losing because of God. Right? Because they refuse to submit to him because of their sin. And the same thing applies to the church even today. Right? When God's people are losing, or when it seems like they're losing, God is not losing. Right? In fact, God already won, already won the victory in Christ. Right? And it can be tempting to think that the Lord has has lost with all the darkness and the evil going on um, and the and and the persecution of the church and people leaving the faith. But God is in control, right? Why does the church die in certain regions of the world? Sometimes it's because, it's because of God, right? Um, because, of, because God has said, so Christ, remember Jesus says in Revelation, uh, when he's walking amongst the, the churches, that he has removed the witness from some churches, right? Um, because they have refused to obey God. That's what we learn from the book of Revelations. If he, Christ says, if you don't obey me, if you don't follow me, then I'm going to remove uh, your witness from you. So it's a very real thing. It's a very real thing. It's a very real reason why churches die, even to this day. So if you want to follow liberal theology or crazy prosperity theologies, that church will die. And history has shown that over and over. You know, a church or a denomination that, that is liberal that doesn't stand on the authority of God's word, um, that rebels against him, they go haywire, right? They go left, and eventually they die, and the people in it are condemned, sometimes eternally, unfortunately. So um, don't think God just judged Israel. He won't judge the church. He does, okay? So by the end of this saga, the Philistines send the ark back to Israel. They're trembling. They're scared. God is judging them. They're like, we don't want it back. 
take this away from us. Right. We get to chapter 7, and Eli is dead, and Samuel is now in charge. And so he gathers all of Israel together. And then verse 5, yes. I, I, I personally don't see that, that link, that connection. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Any other questions? Okay. Um, so, welcome to everyone who just joined after. We in, uh, first Samuel story. Chapter 7, right? So, chapter 7, verse 5. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Right? So the Philistines, uh, so the people are repenting, you know, they're turning back uh, to the Lord. And the Philistines see them gathering, right? They see them all congregating at this place and think, okay, now's a good time to attack them because, you know, they're all there, they're vulnerable. We'll surely get an easy win. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel, right? So when do Israel get the victory? Exactly, when they repent of their sin and they submit to the Lord, right? When they don't, it doesn't matter how many superstitious and gimmicky things and how many weapons and men they have, they end up failing, right? It's the same principle for us today, right? When we have softened hearts, when we are repenting of our own sin and we are not cowards about it, right? And we are actually confessing, then the Lord will be with us. And it's also important to see who does the fighting here? It's the Lord, right? The Lord who fights for his people. It was the Lord who thundered and caused confusion. He gave Israel the victory, right? The battle is the Lord's. In chapter 8, we have, sadly, the cycle of, of Judges. So the cycle that we saw when we looked at the book of Judges last week, right? I think uh, Mike is the, the R's, what is it? Uh, rebellion and then repercussions. And then, yeah, restoration. No, repentance and then restoration, right? So they rebel and then uh, they, they face the consequences of that. And then they repent and the Lord restores them. Um, they had reached a high point, but now 
what we see in chapter 8 is they demand a king, right? Israel wants to have a king. Also, Samuel's sons don't serve the Lord. So similar to how Eli's sons were very bad guys, they were worthless, um, Samuel's sons also do not serve the Lord. So the people look and they're like, look, your sons don't serve the Lord. We don't want them to be judges over us. You know, we don't want them to be in charge because bad leadership, right? We want to be able to appoint a leader. And it sounds like a good reason, right? Obviously, nobody wants a bad leader uh, to be in charge, right? You want good leadership. You want good people to rule the nation. And Samuel is quite upset, and he takes it personally. So in verse 6, he goes to the Lord in prayer about it, and the Lord says, don't worry. It's not you they're rejecting. They're actually rejecting me, right? So they are rejecting the Lord by wanting a king. So the desire for a king itself was... Not, is not what was sinful, right, of the people. Remember, God had intended for there to be a king. It was just a matter of when the king would come and what type of king. The real reason the people wanted a king is found in verse 5. Verse 5, and he said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And then again in verse 19, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So is that a good or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. Yeah, so I think with this immediate context, definitely wrong, right? Because they were not yet there. They were not yet under your David or such and such, right? We see the clear motivation. It's to be like what? To be like all the other nations, right? And is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It's a terrible thing, right? We are not supposed to be like all the other nations. We are not supposed to be like the unbelievers. We're supposed to be set apart, supposed to be holy, right? We're supposed to be showing the world how amazing God is and what a privilege it is to be his people, right? And you're supposed to reflect that in how we live and how uh, we looked at Deuteronomy and Leviticus, all those laws, you know, they're the, for the purpose of showing God that, sorry, showing the nations that we are God's people, you know, we are distinct. And the second thing is they wanted a king to lead the army, right? Uh, we've just seen that they win battles when, when they walk with the Lord, right? When they're in close fellowship with the Lord. So they would have to maintain a, a spiritually close walk with the Lord, right? Spiritual maturity is very hard. 
right? Sanctification is not easy. It's a difficult process. And I think we know that as believers, right? So they're thinking, let's get a king because then you have a professional army, right? It's, it's now we don't have to actually be walking with the Lord closely to get our victories. We have these guys who are just there for the purpose of fighting all the other nations. And, um, and it's, they live in an agrarian society, right? They live off of the land. So um, I think it's a huge temptation for them because it's like, ah, oh yeah, we're working, we don't know who's going to fight, you know, there's all these things. We just want to be able to focus on living, making food, and, you know, being able to sustain ourselves. How nice would it be to have, like, a professional army just going after battle whenever we, we're being attacked, right? Um, you won't really have to trust the Lord that much in that case. And that is exactly what they want. And it's the same temptation we have today, right? I've got my bank account. You know, I've got health insurance. I've got all these things in place. So I don't really have to, you know, oh, this is a terrible situation. Like, let me pay for it, but hold on. Let me just sort out the finances. Or, you know, I've got all these fallbacks on, right? We can trust in things, sometimes subconsciously, which kind of takes away from your trust of the Lord. You can trust your looks. You can trust your family. I have family to fall back on. So, you know, like if things don't work out, I'll just go live at home. Uh, you can trust in your ability, in your skills. You know, I've got a high emotional intelligence, so I can manipulate my way out of any situation. You know, I can talk my way out of it. It's many different safety nets that we can find comfort in. The principle is the same, right? It just looks different to different people. And so in chapter 9, God does something scary, and he gives them exactly what they want, right? Gives them a king after their own heart. He gives them a king like them. So he gives them a king that is a coward, who is vindictive, who is cruel, who is vicious, who is a liar, and that's what they are like, right? When the right king comes along, he has a heart, what does David say, of God's own heart, right? He isn't perfect, but he is repentant. And I'm sure you guys are familiar with the story of David and Saul, right? Um, David and Saul, uh, there's, there's a lot of links, or there's something, something about it that kind of reminds me of Judas and Peter, right? So what really is the difference between Judas and Peter? They are both wretched, right? They both did something terrible to the Lord, right? Judas betrayed Christ for, for money. Jesus, sorry, not Jesus, Peter denied Jesus so strongly, so vehemently, so passionately that he even brought God into it. He said, I swear to God, I do not know this man. It's kind of like he's very into, you know? He brought the Lord into it. So it's, it's blasphemous, right? He blasphemed. He said, I swear to God, I do not know this guy. Three times, not once. And yet, Peter is a great apostle and Judas is a, a great apostate, right? Same with David and Saul. You could make the... I, I believe that David commits the greatest sins than Saul. You know, you can make that case. Uh, he commits adultery with a woman, then has a husband killed, and then he's callous about it. He doesn't really care. And yet, David is the great king, and Saul is the evil king. So what is the difference, really? It all comes down to the heart, Right? which means it all comes down to Christ. So 
what I want us to see, right, as we go through this account, is that even in the narrative, there are so many hints, there's so much in the passage. So even though it's narrative, right, it doesn't teach us specifically, but it highlights certain things where you can, you can learn about Saul, right? Uh, and there's so many hints that show that Saul is not the guy, right? He's not so humble, he's not that spiritual. Actually, he's not spiritual at all, right? And it all comes down to the heart. So we introduce to Saul, and notice what it says in verse 2. This is chapter 9, right? Yeah, chapter 9, verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this, right? It's not like only ugly people go to heaven. We would be in trouble. Uh, there was not... Um, even David, so remember, even David was handsome, we're told, right? David was a handsome guy. But it's the only focus on Saul, right? It's like, okay, here's a guy who's going to be king. We don't, we're not really told about his character. We're just told this is how he looked, right? This is the reason why the people chose him, because he looks the part. And uh, I remember, um, if you were here last year, like Tyrell preached through this book, right? And I think he did mention that there's been like studies that have shown that like most of the time when it comes to elections and um, voting for leaders, people tend to focus more on the externals than the actual character. So if you take the average height of like presidents or CEOs and, and all that stuff, they tend to be like taller people, they tend to be you know, more muscular, they tend to just look the part, you know, which is crazy. It's a, that's a sad aspect of human nature that we so focused on the wrong things instead of the character of people. And that's exactly what's going on with the people here. And David's son, Absalom, who we'll read about, he was kind of the same, right? The focus on him is his external. They said he had beautiful hair, right? They said he was so beautiful, he was like an angel. And he had hair that he would cut once a year, and he would weigh it because he was so rich and, and thick. And the people would gather to watch that. So... I mean, it sounds crazy, and then you realize we have beauty pageants. But anyways, <laughs> there's a, so there's such a focus on his externals, on Absalom's externals, and yet Absalom is an antichrist. Right. So there's, going back on the series we did on Samuel, you guys remember the process of becoming a king in the land? There were three things that a king had to do. Right. First one was called a designation. Second one was demonstration, right? And then the third one was a confirmation. So the designation is where you are designated, you are anointed as king. That's what happens with Saul, right? Samuel comes and says, you are going to be king. The demonstration is where you would actually go out and show or demonstrate that you are kingly material, right? You're worth being a king, right? And then the confirmation um, is kind of like, uh, what do we call it when we, inauguration, you know, when you get a president, it's like that ceremony, it's like now, okay, we are making you, confirming you as the king of the land. And so if you go to chapter 10, 
In chapter 10, we see the designation, right? Saul is anointed by Samuel. And then we have the demonstration. So what is the demonstration? Samuel tells Saul that he has to go down to a certain place where there is a garrison of the Philistines. Right, a garrison was like a military outpost. So it's kind of like, you know, they, they stationed just a few soldiers to keep watch over the border. Right, so you find like typically 10 to 20 soldiers there. So Saul tells, sorry, Samuel told Saul, Samuel told, tells Saul to go there to the garrison and he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you should do what it will have you do. Right? Samuel was in essence telling Saul to attack the Philistine garrison. And if you attack a garrison, you are declaring a war. Right? You're declaring war against the Philistines. It's like attacking an embassy. You know, if you attack the American embassy, we are all, we are all, we are all doomed, guys. We are all doomed. So, this is told to Saul, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't go to the garrison to start the war. Right? He does nothing. He just goes home. So demonstration A doesn't occur. Now Samuel said to him that when you get to the garrison and you start the war, right, he, he would have killed everyone. The assumption is he would kill anyone, everyone, they'd be dead. And he says, wait there and I will come and do sacrifices. Right? But Saul doesn't start the war. He fails. And then there's another designation later in front of the people when he's made king. But again, there we will see that he doesn't prove himself as king. So in chapter 11, Saul gathers an army, and go to chapter 13. In this chapter, they fight the Philistines. They're fighting the Philistines, right? But it is not Saul, it is his son, Jonathan. Jonathan is the one who attacks the garrison, right? Jonathan's the one who does the demonstration. And the place that Jonathan attacks I mean, there's two different names in the scriptures, but it's really the same place. So historians have shown that the, the name of this place that's used for Jonathan is the same one that was actually um, referred to for Saul. Um, so Jonathan starts the war and does a demonstration. And now they get to the part where they have to wait. They have to wait for Samuel, right, to, as the priest to come and do the sacrifices. So Saul and, the, and all the men are waiting and verse 8 of chapter 13, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul gets impatient, and he sees people are leaving, and you know, like, okay, what's going on? This guy's not arriving. It's fine. I'll do the sacrifices myself, right? Does the sacrifices, and it's almost like it would be right then and there, Samuel shows up, right? And he makes excuses, saying, oh, no, um, the people were leaving, they were getting impatient. And that's another thing you will find out about Saul as you read the passage. He never takes responsibility. Right? It's always someone else's fault. He's always making excuses. And verse 12, he says, his, his, his excuse is, uh, oh, sorry, after his error, Saul says, uh, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, right? And that is actually very pagan language. In the original text, it reads, I haven't, I haven't softened the face of God. I haven't softened the face of the Lord. That is a, a pagan view of God, right? So what are pagan, what do we normally do with pagan gods? Like this much, and then you'll have favor, okay, you know? Or do this, get the God of prosperity, the God of fertility on our side, right? 
Uh, and we think it's something that happened back then until you watch a soccer game here and you see people with Muti going on the goalpost. <laughs> what are they doing? So that is a mentality of Saul towards God. Right? The other interesting thing is when Saul prophesies after the Holy Spirit comes upon him, what does everyone say? Is Saul also amongst the prophets? Right? That's what they ask. They see someone prophesying and they're like, oh, he's also amongst the prophets. It's like when you know, uh, you, know, you know a colleague of yours or a family member who lives like crazy, wretched lifestyle, you know, always drinking, always sleeping around, always doing the worst things, or it might be even a, a varsity friend of yours, and then you see them at church on Sunday, you're like, is Tato also a Christian? You know? That's what the people are saying here to Saul. They're like, oh, he's also among the prophets. Didn't know. And that's the idea. And it's little things like that that point to the character of Saul, right? That shows what kind of man he was, what kind of a king he was. And then when Saul is being unveiled to the people during the confirmation, right? He's being unveiled as king. What happens? He's hiding, right? He's hiding behind the baggage, and the people have to go and look for him and actually get him. And you might say, oh, he was being humble, you know, it's humility, because it's like, I don't want the limelight. But it's really pride, right? If you are anointed by God to do something, he has called you to do something, and you are hiding away, it's not humility, right? It's false humility, which is pride, right? So it's crazy. And, and like just looking at that specific point, right? Um, I mean, we all have our calling as believers, right? You know, like as a woman, you're called to be a woman, godly woman, godly man, and all that that entails. And uh, sometimes we can actually like shy away from it. Or you have gifts, you know, you have the gift of I mean, the exhortation, exhorting people, and whatever. And if you don't use it, out of the guise of, ah, you know, just want to be humble and whatever. It's not really humility, right? That is pride. God has called you to do something. Uh, as, a, as a man, if you're a husband and a, a father, you're called to lead and protect your family. If you don't do that, it's not humility. You know what I mean? So um, he's a very prideful guy. And you see, it, it doesn't obviously show itself in the text, but it's there, you know? Um, and so if you go to verse 13, eventually Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. 
but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Right? He never demonstrates that he's king, kingly material. Then Saul is told to kill the Amalekites, and he doesn't do that. He's told to kill, when he comes to the Amalekites, he's told to annihilate, annihilate everyone, right? He's told to kill everyone and everything, but instead he keeps the animals. He keeps the best animals of the Amalekites. And when he's confronted about it, he says, oh, but the people, but the people, you know, we wanted to make sacrifices, we wanted to... You can also see that he justifies his sins. He tries to justify where he did something wrong. And... Um, we can also be, be like that, right? Because remember, what do the Amalekites represent? We talked about how, what the other nations represented, right? They represent our spiritual war, right? Fighting against sin and fighting against temptation. And so when we refuse to fight the Amalekites, it's not going to end well, right? And then, quickly, uh, chapter 16. David is, in chapter 16, David is anointed as king. And if you look at the end of verse 1, it says, For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And go to verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, right? Which is really encouraging because God looks at the heart and not on our. Yes. Um, so, uh, okay, then you have the God picking a king, right, picking David. Uh, you have Jesse bringing out all of his sons, and, you know, he brings out his first son. He's like, is this the one? They're like, no, and he keeps going through all of them. Like, is this the one? Is this the one? And you could see that no one thought David would be king because he's almost like an afterthought. Right? He's like, oh, now that you mention it, I do have another son. And he's a shepherd. And that's the one that the Lord had chosen. Right? 
and then we have David going through this process, right? Designation, demonstration, and confirmation. So he's designated, he's anointed by Samuel, and then we get the demonstration. What happens in the next chapter, in chapter 17? It's David and Goliath, right? And it's a fight with the Philistines. Um, so if you go there, chapter 17, David and Goliath is you know, one of the most famous accounts uh, from the Bible, and it's become like an English idiom for the strong, no, the weak overcoming the strong. You know, against all odds, you overcame your challenges. In some churches, that's what it's about now. You know, obstacles, whether financial or whatever. Um, but we must not just see it as a nice, motivational, encouraging story about trusting in the Lord. Um, there's that, but it's much more than that. It's actually a very powerful picture of the gospel, right? The way it's set up, there's a valley, there's a valley, and right. So there's a valley, and on the one side you find the Israelites, God's people, and the other side you find the Philistines, right? Um, and then Goliath comes out and he's challenging the Israelites, right? And he's taunting them and he's saying all kinds of things about God, saying all kinds of things about the Israelites, which is saying all kinds of things about God, right? And he's saying, elect a champion and come fight me, right? So Goliath is a representative of the Philistines and David is a representative of God's people, right? And the loser has to serve the other people. Now, who should have gone up and fought? You're a Saul, right? Because he's the king. And the people wanted that as well. You know, that's the whole purpose of them having a king. That's why they wanted a king in the first place. But he's a coward. And so um, David pitches up on the scene. And at first, you know, they, some of the Israelites try to get rid of him. They're like, no, go away. Um, but David hears an uncircumcised Philistine defying the army of God, right? Saying all these things about God's people and he's not having it, he's having none of it. You know, he's angry about it. And they bring David before Saul who says, here's some of my armor, you can wear it. Uh, which actually tells us that David was not, I think in our minds, David was a small guy, but he was actually like tall and strong because he could put on Saul's um, armor, right? But David declines, uh, which tells us, uh, and, and then, uh, he goes out to meet with Goliath, right? Goes to the valley to meet him. And uh, we have this long description of Goliath's armor, right? Just telling us what he's wearing. And so in scripture, when we see that, we must pay attention because, you know, we're not reading fashion magazine. We are reading. So it's significant that he's pointing out what he's wearing and for what reason. So if you, you don't see it in the English, but when you read it in the Hebrew, right, a lot of the words, especially of the bronze, so if you see bronze being repeated a lot, um, the word bronze in Hebrew sounds very similar to the word serpent, right? It sounds very similar to the word snake. And so if you're reading it, it sounds like serpent, serpent, and serpent this, and serpent that. And even the, the chain mail he was wearing, you know, um, is described as scaly armor. So Goliath is more than representing just the Philistines. He's representing the Antichrist. He's representing Satan, right? David comes along, comes with a sling and some rocks, and he defeats Goliath, and then he uses Goliath's sword to 
cut his head off, right? Again, it tells you that David is strong. If he can use Goliath's own sword for that, then, um, you know, he must have been a big guy. So Goliath loses and David wins. And all the cowards who were hiding in the valley, because remember, like, the Israelites were scared. They were hiding in the valley. They were, like, fearful. All the cowards who were hiding there, what do they do? They come out and they celebrate, you know? Like, yes, we did it. We did it. And um, it's true because they are victorious, right? Um, they all win because of David. And you see how that reminds us of the gospel, right? Jesus, in his seeming weakness, defeats Satan, who thinks he has it all wrapped up, right? Because the Bible tells us that the devil didn't know he was signing his own death warrant. He thought that he was actually going to kill God. So, and all of us who are just standing on the sidelines watching this happen, who deserve to be judged and go to hell, we get the spoils of victory, right? Christ actually wins, but we're the ones who come out and celebrate with him, right? Um, so Christ won, you know, even though we didn't do anything. We were, we were the cowards. We were scared. And so, obviously, you get to chapter 18, and Saul is not happy. He's not happy about that. He tries to kill David, and... Later on, Samuel comes to Saul and tells him that his kingdom has been removed from him and will be given to another, right? So first he's jealous because, you know, David is getting all the praise. Uh, the ladies, ladies saying Saul has killed a thousand, but David has killed 10,000. And, you know, Saul is in his feelings about that. Um, so he tries to kill David, you know, right? Now David has got a target on his back. So when, Saul, when Samuel tells Saul that, you know, your kingdom is going to be removed from you, how should he have responded? He should have responded like Eli, right? should have been like, it is your will, Lord. But he doesn't because for the next 10 to 15 years, he tries to hold on to his kingdom and kill David. And he actually goes mad. And the application for us is that sometimes you can be disqualified from ministry, right? Because Saul was actually being removed from a position God put him in. The Bible teaches that you can be disqualified from a ministry. And when that happens to leaders, to people in positions, uh, the appropriate response is Eli's response, right? doesn't matter what gifts you have or how amazing you are. If you are disqualified, you are disqualified. And that's why it's so sad when you see pastors and elders who've been disqualified from ministry continue in it and people still support them, right? The kingdom of God will survive without your gifts or my gifts, right? Our duty is just to obey. So, okay, let's take a break there. And then we'll continue. Yes, question. Chapter 16. Um, okay, so the harmful spirit. So, yeah, it, it could have been a demon. Uh, to me, what comes to mind is, like, uh, it, it was there in the books that we read, but we didn't, like, really focus on it. But think of Pharaoh, right? Remember, God hardens his heart. And um, there's plenty, actually, examples of God doing this to people to bring about 
certain actions. So he does it with Saul. And I think he even does, he might do it again. I forget later on, but yeah. Um, uh, where's, there's a passage where God sends a lying spirit on someone. So it was the end of this book. Yeah, so you see the Lord sending a certain kind of spirit on people. And um, to me, I th- like when I read that, um, it's, it's just a, an expression of God doing something similar to how he hardened Pharaoh's heart. I think he could have been described as saying he gave the Pharaoh maybe a harmful spirit or gave him a stubborn spirit or this kind of spirit. That's how I read it. Yes. But I mean, sorry, just before I get too crazy, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's the phrasing, but I think it's significant, you know. So it is a harmful spirit. The most harmful spirit would be, I think, the devil, which is what we saw God do with Job, right? He let Job, he let the devil do anything with Job. So I think it's just, it falls into that category. If you're going to kind of, you know, box it in to say this is where the Lord, this is maybe how the Lord does it, you know. Um, by sending the spirit or by sending the devil even, um, etc., etc. Yes, Percy. Yeah, could you please go to this uh, chapter 28, you know, um, the witch of Edo? Okay, so we'll, I'll, when we get back, we'll do it from chapter 25 to oh. the end, and then we'll do the second time, because the second time it won't be that long. Okay. Yeah, so we'll get to that. Okay, should we break there? Okay, so thanks and all that stuff in the back.